Times a Charm, the show that takes an in-depth look at the third installment of a franchise. This is episode 42, Die Hard with a Vengeance. I'm your host, Mike McLean, and ho ho ho, I have a shotgun now. I mean, happy holidays from Third Times a Charm. Well, this isn't exactly a Christmas movie or a holiday movie at all, despite my bad memory. Might have thought it was a 4th of July film. Think that's the next one. This franchise has its roots in the Christmas genre, because I'll be damned if Die Hard isn't everyone's favorite Christmas movie. Boy, does everyone, including myself, love to point out that Die Hard's a Christmas movie. Uh, On a kind of related topic, how about the way almost all of Shane Black's movies take place at Christmas, but it's not explicitly called out or even about that. Today, I'm joined by my unofficial co-host, you-know-who, Brian Rodriguez, and one of his guests that's been on his show several times and is making his debut here today, Dan Ferreira, a.k.a. the third Dan. He's the third guy named Dan I've had on the show, so I just gave him that parody name based on the classic noir film The Third Man. He's the third Dan. The third man. Joseph Cotton, Orson Welles, etc., etc. Today I get to one of the heavy hitters of the action franchise, Die Hard, with a vengeance. Yes, John McClane is playing Simon Says with Sam Jackson all over the Big Apple, trying to stop a mad bomber who bombs at midnight. That's from the tick. With an ulterior motive, perhaps? Simon says, keep away, shoots and ladders, maybe some hungry hippos, probably a bit of concentration, there's the water jug thing. Without any further ado, let's just get on with it, man, because I've got a hangover the size of Central Park. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirty and pretty. Been down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk, harder than a match. Yeah. But life's a different world. Go out and find a girl. Come on, come on, that's all right. Just like the heat, it'll be alright. Babe, don't you know it's a pity today? Can't be like the night in the summer, in the city, summer, in the city. Alright, so welcome back to Third Time's a Charm. Very excited about this episode. This is one that I definitely wanted to get to before the end of the run of the show. I would actually wanted to do this in the summer because I thought it would be a little more relevant, but actually it has roots in Christmas in the holiday season, so it uh, makes sense that it's coming out this month in December. Today's movie is Die Hard with a Vengeance from 1995. Joining me tonight... Every once in a while, this guy is here. He is my unofficial co-host, Brian Late Night High School Slumber Party Rodriguez. How are you? Feeling good. Feeling ready to talk. This one has me excited. Before I introduce my next guest, I just want to say, you recently texted me and was like, what's up with Die Hard? When are you going to do Die Hard 3? I said, it's kind of coming out of nowhere. What's happening? And you're like, I just really want to uh, watch that movie right now. And since you are an unofficial co-host, you do have some sway in what goes on on this show. And I was like, shit, let's just do it. Let's make it the next episode. I hope you're happy because here we are and we're going to get into it really soon. Oh, I'm very happy, Mike. I'm very happy. I don't know. Maybe by the end of it, we might not be friends because I'm back on your show. But today I'm back with a vengeance. 
Ooh. Apparently, I have since found out that this is a, you know, a very controversial entry into the Die Hard franchise. We'll get there, but I stalled long enough. Got to introduce a first-time guest. Very excited to have him here. Poached him from Brian's show. We've talked before over there. I wanted to call someone in. You know, it's weird. It was hard to kind of get a guest for this episode because people I reached out to just didn't want to talk about this movie. But tonight, thank you for joining us, Dan Ferreira. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you for having me. You know, like longtime listener, first time caller. So uh, <laughs> glad to be on the show. Glad I could help out. And without giving too much away at the get go, it's it's. I think it's a really fitting movie for the times, like literally right now, especially uh, you know between police and society and getting things to work together again. I think it's a really relevant movie. I think it's a good time to do it. Yeah, it it's definitely tackles the social issues that are relevant today. You know, this is 1995, and it feels like it could have been made yesterday. Let's get into this a little bit with our history with the franchise. Overall, there are, what, five movies and a commercial? (laughs) There's actually six movies. I don't know if you guys are familiar with a film called The Detective starring Frank Sinatra. Well, they were both based off the same book, right? Oh, really? So the original Die Hard is based on the sequel to that book starring the same characters, but it is McLean. Some things are switched around, but it's mostly the same. I think he goes to visit his daughter at uh, at work in the sequel during Christmas time, or it might not even be Christmas, but events play out similarly. However, The Detective is just sort of this strange, hard-boiled noir film. And I only bring it up really because a bit of fun trivia is when they were making Die Hard, uh, they had to approach Frank Sinatra, who was well into <laughs> old age, because he had the option to portray John McClane, that character, you know, who it was based on. So they actually had to go to him first. And I think Bruce Willis is around that age now that Sinatra would have been, and he's still playing John McClane in car commercials. Yeah, that's because Sinatra had the wherewithal to know when he should step down. But that film isn't really considered part of the overall canon of what we're talking about tonight. Realistically, I feel this is a trilogy. The fourth and fifth one after this, it's it's almost the same theory as like Mad Max, where it's like the first two, maybe after Thunderdome, Mad Max, the idea is that maybe he's not an actual character, he's a legend, and these are the cumulative stories of that history, of that mythical creature, and by the time Live Free or Die Hard rolls around, John McClane's not a cop, he's a, he's a superhero. They almost break canon at some points, too, and don't really care anymore because it's, <laughs> you know, that's not the point of the character. I've not seen part five, but from my understanding, they were trying to sort of hand off the franchise to one of his kids. You know, first we had Mary Elizabeth Winstead in part four, who, who gets trapped in an elevator the whole movie, and he runs around with Justin Long. Uh, so I don't <laughs> understand what the whole dynamic was going on there. Should have been his son. Uh, but then part five, I guess we have Jai Courtney playing his son all grown up, and they're in Russia running around also pretty relevant i guess today (laughs) i've not seen those i've not seen the car commercial but uh, dan ferrara what is your history like when did you first see the die hard when did you first see this die hard coming from a guy myself who majored in film and tv production not flaunting that fact i don't do anything with it yeah you would think i have like some sort of taste in film but i don't and it's because growing up it was always just straightforward like action flicks especially like you know it's like this top gun days of thunder the under siege which kind of bleeds into this a little bit because they're very much of that same vein so like under siege james bond is probably the biggest one it's always it was always you know and that's where it's like the diehard movie almost like took okay so every james bond movie ever starts with this crazy action 
opening sequence. And Die Hard just kind of took that idea and said, what if we just did that for the whole movie? And they just kind of kept getting more like, how can we top the next one? How can we top the next one? So yeah, it was it, like Die Hard's pretty much a staple. And it's, I think it's because that really well-balanced mix. And I will say the genius behind the character of McLean is that it ability to balance that hyper-violence with the light-hearted irreverence in comedy, you know? Yeah. But the original Die Hard is definitely I've got to, I've had to seen that probably more times than I can count whether I wanted to or not. And I feel like I've only watched it on cable with commercials. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've ever watched like the Die Hard like straight through. But yeah, so this this whole series has been uh, pretty relevant through especially my youth. Yeah, that first Die Hard movie, you know, I remember when I first saw it as a kid, I was like, wow, this is this is awesome. But what I think Die Hard really made its stamp on is like, it's like a bottle episode movie where like the whole movie is going to take place in one location, this building. And then the sequel is like, okay, the whole movie is going to take place in an airport. And that became a pattern, a staple, a trend in action films to this day, to the point where it's like, it's Die Hard on a boat, die hard on a train. So it's really interesting how much of an effect this has had, not just on like us individually, but like film culture. I wouldn't, it's not like high art, but like, I wouldn't be ashamed to say like as a film student that I enjoy canon films, action films, mindless blockbuster stuff, because there's a, there's, there is an art to the design of some of these. And when they're done right, they're, they're exceptional. Apparently the original script for Die Hard 2 was going to be on a boat, but because Under Siege 1 was filming at the same time, they scrapped that idea completely, and that script that they started preparing became Speed 2. Yeah, it was called Troubleshooter, and it was even, <laughs> it was even considered for this movie, for Die Hard 3. Like, it was still laying around, apparently, and then it became Speed 2. So, like, yeah, like the, the Under Siege got to it first. And even this movie, I mean, it was it's still a tradition in Hollywood to sort of find a script and tailor it into the movie you want it to be. So this movie was a script very popular script called Simon Says and it was at first doctored and rewrote to be a Lethal Weapon sequel but it got put into Turnaround and eventually got turned into this Die Hard movie. And of course it's not the Simon Says starring Dennis Rodman which was another action film that no one saw in the 90s. Wasn't Van Damme in that? <laughs> no that's Double Team. You're right that is Double Team about the sweatshops. <laughs> just want to add like this is a big thing in action films it seems like people write action films and the the way they get made i think one of the bad boys sequels is like that too and of course there's that big rumor which is i think all but confirmed the brazilian job which was supposed to be the sequel to the charlie's italian job became uh, fast five so like this is a thing that happens a lot in action films even today Brian, what about you, though? Like, Die Hard, your history sort of uh, briefly, like, with the franchise overall, and then we'll get into tonight's special. So one of my uncles was very influential in, like, the stuff I enjoyed as a kid. Spent a lot of time with him as a kid. He was on the younger side, maybe, like, 15 or 17 years older than me, like, around that age. So I saw The Matrix with my uncle, and I saw a lot of uh, films with him. And obviously Die Hard, I didn't see it in the theater. But it was a movie that played a lot on TV, as Dan mentioned. And I definitely caught it there. But it, it was one of these things where I think my uncle told me about Die Hard before I ever saw Die Hard. Like, so I kind of knew certain things and I got really excited to see the first one. But where I really, really got into the franchise when I was younger is that PlayStation released a video game called the Die Hard Trilogy. And this was an awesome game. It's like one of the all-time best-selling PlayStation games. And it, it was three games in one. And the first one was like a third-person shooter 
The second one was like a first-person shooter. And the first one was the first film. The second one was the second film. The third one was the third film. And the third one was my favorite one in the game. And it was a kind of a driving thing, almost like a Grand Theft Auto, but not like getting out of the car and stuff. Die-hard theme version of the game Driver. I remember it. Yeah. And first you were in the taxi and Samuel Jackson or maybe like a sound alike would be giving you directions. Like, make a left up here. Make a right up here. No! You know, like, and it, it was really fun. And that's when I first started to watch the trilogy But then I've wanted to cover this film on this show, or at least hear your episode on this film, because like I'm a New York guy, live in New York, and this is like Die Hard 3 is such a New York movie. One of the most New York movies I know. One of the last documents of that era of old New York. For sure. And it came to my mind lately, just because I was in some of the places recently that this movie took place. My office where I used to work is actually at the corner of 72nd Street on Broadway, and that's where the payphone is. Like, that was my subway stop every day for years before the pandemic. And then I just learned the other day that this was the top grossing film of that year. Like, more than Toy Story, more than anything else that came out of 95. (laughs) Isn't it so weird to think that this and Toy Story came out the same year. Doesn't this seem so much older, so much more 80s than Toy Story? That's wild. Shout out to Hanks, but I was in theaters to see this. Yeah, for sure. In fact, I think I saw it around the 4th of July, and I thought that this was the one that sort of took place during the 4th of July, but that's the next one, not this one. Anyway. Yeah, sorry. the next one is very, like, patriotic. This one has a very patriotic theme, but, like, I mean, musical theme. But, yeah, no, so I'm excited to talk about this series because Die Hard was definitely the first action film I ever saw. I didn't really grow up in an action film household and yeah i just always love the series well again i'm with dan the first three the new ones i've maybe seen once or twice and they're not my cup of tea i I think it's safe to say we all like this movie right yes it's got its problems i think uh when we get there it it just it goes on to maybe uh, a, a little too long. I have an idea of how to fix that. Like I was mentioning with Die Hard, you know, I think people expected to see John McClane in a bottle. To be quite honest, it's a testament to the strength of his character that he doesn't need to be confined, that he can be spread out across the entire city, run amok, do his thing, and still be who he is. Uh, and so, like, that's basically my stance on this movie is, like, I love what they're doing with John McClane. I love that he's broken out of the bottle. He's no longer the ship. He is out there wreaking havoc across the entire island you know if you want to say he's it is a bottle episode it's a manhattan episode if anything it does have its flaws i significantly remember the first half half of this film so much more than i remember the second half of this film but i don't need john mcclane in a bottle i think it is kind of bottled what i'm so happy about is like we have seen john mcclane this grizzled nypd detective Fish out of water in L.A. I guess he's in the airport in the second one. But he's still a fish out of water because he's in D.C. and he's an yes. L.A. cop. So. Yes, and he's an L.A. cop in that one. But this is him and his roots in his home, an NYPD cop. His own jurisdiction, yeah. Yes, exactly. Great line. Finally in his own jurisdiction. And I, and I know he's suspended, so I guess technically not, but I am all over this maybe because of that reason. And at the time when this was the end of the trilogy, I thought it was like a suitable ending. I mean, because it ties up loose ends from the first one. Not real loose ends, you know, we didn't need it, but it connects to the first film and we get to see him at home. It checks all my boxes. So I don't have a problem with it. If you're against violence, I get that, but then don't watch action films. <laughs> I mean, no, this whole series is predicated on violence. Like, it's about people being shot to death. John McClane's a murderer, people. Like, if you're not, <laughs> if you're not comfortable, there's no due process in these. You know, it's 
Dan, what are sort of the things about it that you like most? Going with the knowledge into that this script wasn't written as a diehard script. I think you're right in that it is a testament to the character of John McClane, that you can fit him into this style and it'll totally work. Because, I mean, you're right. There's a lot of huge changes from, it's the first time we don't have Holly. It's the first time, like you said, he's in his own jurisdiction. It's the first time he's not confined to, you know, it's people like comfortability. People like coming back and it's the same reason we, we like sitcoms and stuff like that. We know everything's going to be all right and back to the way it started in 30 minutes. And this totally broke that diehard mold. And that made a lot of people like maybe uncomfortable at first. You know, maybe that the first two movies cemented in their heads already. And now they didn't like that this one broke that mold. I thought it was really good. Like you said, it's it's McLean turning loose on his home city. It was, no pun intended, like a fun ride to travel with him throughout this and seeing him as like a little bit of a stereotypical like Sam Spade type cop, like oh, I'm hungover, and <laughs> it's the first time I picked up on how hard boiled he is. Like he is the dude, like he is from Sin City in this. Oh, movie. absolutely. But this is like this almost started like the stereotype loose cannon cop who plays by his own rules type thing. And I, I don't mean this movie in particular, but I mean Die Hard. You know, that your lethal weapons are from that. You know, it's it, it starts that loose cannon cop on the edge who plays by his own rule. A good cop doesn't do what his chief says. But you know that idea of of cutting through the red tape with action. You know, don't don't talk about it. Just do it. Yeah, it gets results. <laughs> I think that a lot of people in today's 2020 lens might see it that way and be like, oh, the, you know, this promotes cops to be reckless in real life. And, you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I'm just telling your listeners out there and you guys, I don't view it that way. Maybe I should view it with the lens of like, what does this mean for like police relations with the city? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's And it's not meant to be taken that way. Although, taking a step back, I just had to breathe because I did giggle. And I'm probably getting itself in my head here, but at one point, McLean says to Zeus, he's calling him a, a basically reversed racist call. You're mad at me because I'm white. And he's like, did I ever repress you? And I'm sitting there thinking like, it's 1995. <laughs> you're an NYPD cop. And you've probably <laughs> been on the force. Like, I get it. It's the 90s. Things are a little bit better in the 90s. But it's like, you probably were on the force through the 80s where it was really bad in Harlem. <laughs> and yeah, probably at some point you did oppress somebody. There's a good point there that, yeah, you probably did. Yeah, they even bring up like his booking sheet. Like, you know, they're like, who could be doing this to you? And he, he's got like a, it's a mile long of the people he's like put away. But this movie is extremely about political correctness. Like that, that is not a hidden sort of subtext. Like it is out in the open. I think what this movie really in this franchise is trying to do is you're right. I don't think they ever saw Beyond Part 3 and they're just trying to fold it all down as to say at the beginning of the Die Hard franchise, we sort of created the new model and now we want to put it to rest. We want to show you all the problems that sort of Die Hard and its clones have sort of perpetuated throughout cinema, right? As like, as especially in the model of someone like John McClane or a Dirty Harry or, or something like that, or even like a Wolverine, you know, like this like anti-hero thing in their credo. It's no different than a manifesto of some guy in the woods to me at some point. It's the same reason cops should not have Punisher decals. Essentially. And you're totally right. Like, Dan, those are moments where I think now, like, I, I sent you guys a text with a sequence of Sam Jackson talking to his nephews about not trusting white guys. And I was like, unironically, I was like, this scene aged really well. And it I did. think the whole movie does because you can actually see it for what it is these days. I think the audiences have sort of caught up to its joke or maybe it's not its joke, but it's 
level, right? Where I think we were seeing it as, well, it's just going to be another fluff action piece. And so at the time, before all of this political correctness sort of really hit the airwaves, they got ahead of the game there. And they're like, look, people are going to be not being able to say the N-word nearly this much in movies, not even be able to smoke in movies these days. You know, there's all this kind of stuff is still here. And I think that that was sort of part of their gimmick. That was part of the game they were playing. I did read something while I was watching this on the on the rewatch that Jackson, apparently he was a huge fan of the first two anyway, and he jumped at the chance to be in it. But he said he chose the character Zeus because he said it was the most like him character he's played. Wow. And he it, like dressed stuff and why he did. He's like, I felt a lot of uh, Malcolm X through him. And I'm like, OK, no, it totally makes sense. Uh, yeah, and that was very that was sort of very much in the zeitgeist at the time, right? The Spike Lee movie and, and everything. Um, it's funny; just it occurred to me that these two were in Pulp Fiction the year before together, and I guess that was Sam Jackson and, and Bruce Willis. I don't think they shared the screen, but here they are, the entire movie. But this is definitely what I came to know Sam Jackson for. This performance is amazing. Like this, this character is great. Like he's just sort of as flawed as. John is, you know, in his own way, like he's, he's not infallible, right? Like he's smart, he's super intelligent, but like, he's also got a chip on his shoulder, like everyone else in New York City, I guess. Uh, so I appreciated the way he played it. And it's nice to hear that he said it's most like him as a person, because this character Zeus does come across, I think, more sort of fleshed out than I would have expected. Yeah, I agree. And that's what makes it great, right? Like no one has ever, if you want to count Carl from Family Matters, maybe, but nobody has ever been like a true partner. Reginald Bill Johnson, shout out. <laughs> well, it's funny because I thought, is that what they're doing here? Where they like, so they dug back into part one to find Hans Gruber's brother. What else did he do in part one? Well, he teamed up with a black cop and it's like, okay, let's do that. And let's see what that would really be like. And let's see what that would be like in New York City. But let's not make him a cop. Let's just give him, you know what I'm saying? Like there's shades of that going on here. No, no but to that point, you're right. And it's, I think it was a really good pairing uh, for McLean's character in the sense that you're teaming up with this guy who's not a cop and he's not just a sidekick now. Yeah, exactly. He's an actual physical partner. I think it gives a lot of, if McLean was a real person, it gave him a lot of perspective because they're very alike in, in a weird way. In, in the fact that like, you know, Sim asked to speak to McLean's new buddy and he, you know, he basically tells him to go fuck himself when he gets on the phone. Total, dis you know, th this guy has already blown up multiple things and Sam Jackson's like, I'm still going to give you attitude because he is also a loose cannon that is playing by his own set of rules, by what he sees as justice, you know, and it pisses off McLean. And maybe McLean sits there and goes, oh, this is what it's like for other people. That's an interesting point. Yeah, like the idea that why isn't Sam Jackson playing John McLean? That is sort of another part of the subtext, perhaps, is like, look, he can do it and he's doing it better at, at times. There's moments in the movie where Sam Jackson has to go do something without the protection of John McLean with the, you know, he's got the shield, he's got his badge. And I'm just like, oh man, I get so tense at that moment because like he knows that he is saving the day, but any other average cop out there on the street is just going to like try to shoot him. And that almost happens in the movie. And try explaining that, you know, like, listen, I know you don't get it, but me with no authority was sent here by a guy you don't know who does have a badge to try and explain. You just sound crazier, especially in the 90s in New York, whereas like the most real one of the most realistic things is in the beginning when he has his sandwich board in Harlem and he starts going, oh, he just broke out of the, you know, he just escaped from the loony bin. He's like, I got a headache because that's the most believable thing, <laughs> like, you know, oh, of that situation. That's really believable for mental health care in the time. John McTiernan is not the most political guy, I feel, or at least politically correct guy. I mean, the 
the director. He's back from the first movie, so I feel like he knows, like, he's got a good grasp of the material and everything. Sidebar, um, I had heard, like, a weird Hollywood rumor that he went to prison for conspiracy to, like kill his wife but that's not true i don't think that's the truth i think it was all wiretapping and, and phone tapping and things like that that sent him up the river for about a year or 12 months but i, I just find that fascinating that is really interesting <laughs> because yeah he also directed you know hunt for red october and predator yeah his style is often aped you know like his movies are great looking they're they're a lot of great action and this movie has tons of energy before we go any further i know it's you know been like almost a half an hour and everything but i feel like in order to talk about the rest of the movie i should at least go over the plot in a very sort of basic few sentences here so um ultimately what's going on is that the brother of hans gruber who john McClane killed at the end of the first movie to save nakatomi plaza he's here his name is simon he has come to new york to rob the federal reserve of all of its gold and in order to do so he's created the ultimate distraction by sending john McClane on sort of this crazy wild goose chase across new york city to disarm a number of different bombs and solve a bunch of riddles sam jackson as zeus gets roped in into all of this when he tries to save John McClane and Jeremy Irons as Simon almost gets away with it, but not exactly because John McClane is our all-American cowboy hero who saves the day at the very end. So Jeremy Irons in this movie as uh, Simon Gruber, you know, this movie starts with a terrorist bombing. It's very different, let's just say, to watch this movie now as it was then because there are multiple bombings in this movie a subway a building at one point there's a bomb in a school shocking how the new york police deals with all of this information and how nobody on the island is aware that any of this is really going on i kind of want to start with you brian as sort of my new york consultant let's just say what were sort of your thoughts when this movie began and it opens with this terrorist attack Obviously, everything here is put in the context of 9-11 when we talk about bombings in the city. And I, I want to say you, you wouldn't see this movie made after 9-11, but I'd be wrong because look at the sequels. You would now, yeah, in a post-Cloverfield world. Wasn't this movie released at like the same time as the Oklahoma City bombings? Uh, okay, City bombing. Let's see. Bombing. It's. I think it's around that time. I think you're right, Dan. Um, 95. Yeah, so same year. But it was already in production or whatever. Right, right. I just don't think the director cares. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it is jarring for New York because anything like this would be cause mass hysteria. It seems like the city is going on its own way, and that's very New York, especially New York depicted in movies. But, I mean, 9-11 changed everything for New York, obviously, so it's jarring. But the way we open up here, like, I love it in a sense that there is no fucking around. And I'm going to drop some F-bombs here because that's diehard. But <laughs> No, but there's no screwing around, right? Like, it just, boom. Die hard with a vengeance, you know? Yeah, hot time. We're in the city. Great establishing shots and then right into the action. Are there any fatalities in that bombing? I mean, it looks like there are. They don't really act like it, though, you know? Like, that's a weird thing. That's what's so jarring. I mean, I think you're right. I think it's all it, it's all pre and post 9-11 context in our heads now. You know, those weren't even technically bombings, right? Like, those were airplanes, right? So, like, it's it is sort of... A very different level when you think about it. However, knowing that there's a terrorist running around the city, they do know, the cops do know that there are bombs planted places. They just don't know exactly where yet. They find one in Chinatown. You know, that's basically when Simon starts like calling him and telling John McClane what to do. 
it's not like this movie didn't stop playing on television after 9-11, right? It's not like they took it off the airwaves and there was no block of it. Or, and you know, I just don't think it's ever considered. And it was just sort of um, a jarring reminder to me, like, oh, yeah, I kind of forgot what we were in for here. Like, this guy is, yeah, going to blow up a subway at some point. I think if they were depicting scenes of mass casualties, I think it might be something that'd be censored for TV, but we just never really see that. Most of the damage is done by McLean or... Or to McLean. <laughs> to McLean, yeah. Or even Simon Gruber shooting his German friends. And by the way, funny, both movies have a British guy playing the German bad guy, both the first Die Hard and this Die Hard. Just interesting. Oh, yeah. I think all of his team are played by foreign dudes tr- because they're trying to do terrible American accents and I think those are real bad accents that those actors had to perform uh, like they weren't necessarily trying. But apparently both the late Alan Rickman and Jeremy Irons German accents have been criticized by Germans. We don't know because it's just like generic bad guy German accent but Jeremy Irons doing a German accent he sounds like Christopher Lloyd in Camp Nowhere when he's trying to fool the parents. <laughs> exactly the same voice i love the idea that a british person jeremy irons is doing a german accent but then he's doing an american accent through a german accent as a british person the levels here my good well even the southern not even just an american accent he does like the southern accent when he's trying to smooth talk as he's the the contractor dan what are you feeling about the intro here not just like the explosions and stuff but um how we're reintroduced to john mcclain and everything like sort of woken up out of a stupor i guess (laughs) get me john mcclain smash cut him with a hangover believe it or not there's so much and that's where i think i have to say like i think the writing was a little bit smarter than we give it credit for but let me bring it back even a little bit what you said with traffic and like you know hot time somewhere in the city right there that says it all because everybody knows when it's hot out in new york shit goes down it didn't do the right thing it's it's like that's like it's an established thing bad things happen when it's hot out in new york in action movies it's it's like a trope now especially like pre-air conditioning era Oh, yeah. Just everybody's angry and it's going to happen. No, I think they tied a lot together in the first few minutes of McLean's hangover to the time they drop him off with his uh, sandwich board. So much is set up. He's like, oh, what else? You know, this is a call. What else do we have on the on the list for today? Oh, so-and-so called about, you know, 14 missing dump trucks. And they write, they blow it off as, oh, it's insurance fraud. They got those things are in California already. The guy's just trying to Italian lightning type deal. And then he's talking about his buddy. He's like, oh, is your badge number still 699? Nine, one, you know, and it's all these little things that come full circle towards the end. And, but and then I just love like the callback, like even in Harlem with his sandwich board. But when he gets knocked down, and what does he have? He has the gun duct taped to his back. Like what a callback! You know, that's the first thing we see about McLean is that he has his gun duct taped to his back. And, and I could see that bothering fans, being like, "Oh, it cheapens the moment." But no, that's that's his ingenuity like he's almost a one-trick pony like he does not have a lot of things up his sleeves give him that one thing be like it worked once it's gotta work again it's like my ace in the hole he's literally going to be naked but he's like i'm always going to have a plan whether that plan is a good plan or a bad plan i'm going to have a plan yeah and that it's like you said it's a key to his ingenuity that there's always a fallback somehow yeah he's like a like a macgyver but like i I know macgyver didn't like to kill people and stuff like that but like he's like a macgyver i don't know if john likes to kill people (laughs) i don't know he might have a little (laughs) bloodlust okay yes but he's willing to kill macgyver is is not he's always able to get his way out of like you said dan out of these situations uh, and and a lot of times it doesn't feel like it's crazy i think again in the later sequels it does but he's just like guessing things on the fly a lot well what is what is success but 
you know, opportunity plus luck. Yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. And that just describes John McClane's attitude. That describes Bruce Willis's career, right? Like, that's oh, true. This, it's true. This, this, is, this is like be, before <laughs> Unbreakable. This is kind of, or even Sixth Sense, really. Like, those are sort of a renaissance for him in the way, like Travolta's. Yeah, this could have been a Hudson Hawk. All due respect to Hudson Hawk, I, I love that movie and everything, but he's living and breathing this character. Every little facial tick, every little thing is just instinct at this point. It feels, and then I think that makes up for a lot. You know, I think that goes a very long way with the audience. Even subconsciously, if you're not aware of it, like I don't even see Bruce Willis when I'm watching a Die Hard movie. I see John McClane when I'm not watching a Die Hard movie. That's the thing. It's just John McClane in a different movie. That's a good point. I agree with that 100%. I love this first hour especially. Like I feel like everything with this Simon Says game of him and um, Sam Jackson running around the city is really tight, is really taut, and the, they keep the mystery up. Um, it's right in front of our faces the whole time upon like rewatch. It's even, he mentioned something about, Simon mentioned something about Fort Knox on the phone, which tips off like the gold. It's just incredible to me when they're sitting around wondering who this guy could be, and they're wondering who John McClane, you know, screwed over in the past. Nakatomi Plaza never comes up. It doesn't come up for like an hour. It's like, dude, the first thing I would think of is either the airport incident or the Los Angeles incident. And then there's like all the petty crime crooks that I busted named Simon. What do you think? Is it the two global uh, covered uh, events that happen, you know, with those two terrorist organizations? Or is it the guy you busted for selling dope on the corner? <laughs> Probably that guy. <laughs> well, well. Dan, you kind of made me think about this a little bit differently with one of your openings. And Mike, I know you'll appreciate this because we talked about Mad Max and the Thunderdome, whatever the hell it's called, which I love. Beyond Thunderdome. You know how much I enjoy that film. But maybe these are just the three John McClane adventures that we've seen because they were movies. Like maybe instead of doing sequels with an old man. They should have like rebooted with someone else, something like in between John McClane adventures. So it's kind of like an Indiana Jones situation, right? Like we don't even know what came first. Like the airport could come after this. Some of those Indiana Jones TV shows are great, to be honest. He becomes a spy, a teenage spy in World War One, And um, Teddy Roosevelt teaches young Indiana Jones how to shoot a gun while he's on safari in Africa together with his father promoting his book about decency it's a crazy show it's a whole other thing sorry <laughs> i mean i love the last crusade too and you know what like I, i'm bringing up indiana jones and the last crusade this feels a lot like that as well i know you don't meet john McClane's dad but an adventure that calls back to the first one and it's worthy enough for the character I, I i see a lot of similarities there too but yeah i mean who knows now that dan when you brought up mad max i thought of it like that like oh Maybe they're like, oh, which one of the people you pissed off, John, is the person who's going after you? And maybe there's 10 instances like the one in L.A. You know, right. who knows? Like, maybe he's always finding himself in these weird things. I mean, I don't know. Like, or you brought up Dirty Harry before. And isn't, aren't there like five Dirty Harrys or something like that? Like, maybe, maybe we just haven't seen all the John McClane adventures uh, circa 1980 something to 1990 something. Well, I'll tell you this much. I would rather they start doing something like that. I think that would serve better than, you know, getting Bruce Willis back or, or handing it off to one of the, his established kids that have actors already assigned to those roles and stuff like just 
just take it back just have it like yeah like james bond like you were saying even even earlier earlier there dan like you brought up bond like make it more like that and recast it and all this i don't think you know harrison ford's come out and be like i'm the only one ever going to be called indiana jones it's like well that that sucks man like you know i hopefully bruce <laughs> willis wouldn't feel the same way i know sinatra didn't right he signed off That's he, true. he was a one and done well there's this like i never read it i was just reading when i was doing research for the film uh there's this like a, i think it's a graphic novel or at least a novel uh called like john McClane year one that a lot of people have wanted oh. to adapt and it's it's his first years on the police force or his first year on the police force again i've never read it i just became familiar with it over the weekend here but yeah that interested me rookie I hope it's a lot of him writing parking tickets and yeah. getting really <laughs> shitty beats because he's the new guy and like having to go on coffee runs and shit. It's just pages pages and pages of him doing paperwork. <laughs> it sounds a lot like, I don't know if you guys read Batman year one, but it sort of sounds maybe like the Jim Gordon storyline from that. Like he has an affair, you know, him and Holly are, she's pregnant, but there's distance. Like they just adapt that part and leave all the Batman out. Uh, <laughs> that could be interesting. Or, or by the end, like he realizes he the hero the city needs and like starts going like a wrecking ball uh like just off the rails and doing whatever it takes minus wearing a costume it's called die hard year one i wanted to look it up but see, it's actually pretty apt because mclean kind of is a superhero without the costume he's not that distant from the punisher in this no that's actually quite a good comparison i was thinking casey jones from ninja turtles but i've been reading a lot of that old stuff recently that's probably more apt because casey jones had the same sense of humor Oh my God, which is like every other line. Like I appreciate it to a degree, but the whole movie is just quip after quip, right? Like it, it's like I couldn't even keep track after a while. It's like, does anyone speak normally? That's the real in-between story of John McClane. It's him staying up at night writing potential one-liner <laughs> for foes. Does that sound cool? Hold on, let me read it out loud. That's why Holly <laughs> left. Holly left because he kept bouncing these fucking one-liners off of her at night and she's like, just wants to go to bed. <laughs> Dad jokes, but like with an edge. Seriously. Let's just talk about this first hour and our favorite parts. If you guys had a favorite riddle that they had to solve, if you had a, a favorite moment, because it takes about 50 minutes until we are introduced to Simon. Uh, and a lot of great action takes place between there. So my favorite part of this movie, and not just this movie, but maybe one of my favorite car chases that I feel like people don't give a lot of credit to. But my favorite moment of this movie is when he is racing through Central Park and downtown and trying to cover half the island in a quarter of the time. I'm not exactly sure with the math. There's a lot of fuzzy math in this movie, but I just think the way that's shot, the way it's edited, everything about that car race is just like incredible. And I don't know why it's never, it never seems to be mentioned or brought up when people are mentioning great car chases. Brian, did you have a favorite part of this first hour of the movie? Yeah, I mean, I, I love that car chase scene. It's always been something like on our sister podcast too fast too forever when they i've always hoped they would do this film because it is such a car chase film but i get how it's not you know everything there's a lot of other stuff going on just preceding that central park car chase again like such a new york film again i love when they're just on the payphone in front of grace papaya please eat at grace papaya it's awesome and then just leading into that now i get really pissed off when new york city geography doesn't make sense in movies is it perfect here no, but it does make some general sense. No way would cutting through the park save time because just from avoiding people and 
swerving and then going in and out. Like you just might as well drive on the sidewalk, you know. Which he does at one point. He does that too. But I mean, that is some precision fucking driving. Like only like we're talking about him being a superhero at this point. Like that's his ability. Is like he can see two seconds into the future. Yeah, I'm not gonna complain. It's cool as hell. Yeah, but he turns to Sam Jackson. He's like, oh, that's not the fastest way to get across town. And he flat out says, like, no, we're gonna cut through the park. He's like, oh, the park drive is closed. He's like, that's not what I meant. He's talking to Sam Jackson like he's done this before. Yes. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, cool. And that's kind of how he drives. It's like, no, nah, no, nah, we're cool. It's not like, hey, this is going to be really fucked up, but we, we have to do it. It's like, no, nah, it's cool. I got it. No big deal. I got it. <laughs> we'll just go right through the park. Like, he just acts like it's business as usual. I think it's that laissez-faire that play, that is the McLean. And, and I also feel like there's a lot of Western motif going on in this one, especially. Like, he's called the cowboy in the first two movies a lot, but he doesn't get a chance to roam, you know? And in this one, like, I feel like this is the horse and buggy race and later he's going to jump on a train you know at like a subway but like it's like a train robbery kind of situation and that's where my mind was going during this race too what about all the like the bomb sequences and stuff what did you guys think about like the properties of the bomb itself i mean i'm not a chemist i don't care (laughs) well i thought it was kind of cool i mean it's it's totally james bond again where it's like it, uh, you know you have to get the two liquids f- together and then they activate i mean it seems kind of convoluted why not just make it a regular stick of dynamite i think we have to talk about the water jug scene that's what i was fishing i was fishing for that no 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 water jugs it's the most controversial point of this film. If you go on the internet, so many people are pissed off about this. <laughs> so I, I tease. This is the most talked about thing on the internet about this movie because they don't really solve it in the movie. It's been solved later on the internet. It kind of just like, oh, wait, put this in here and it's okay. For the people who need to know, the premise is that there is a bomb about to go off, but to defuse it, there is a very precise scale. And if they get exactly four gallons on this scale, the bomb will be diffused. So they're at the fountain in Central Park, and there's two jugs there with this bomb. There's a three-gallon jug and a five-gallon jug, and they need exactly four gallons to defuse this bomb. Now, you have a three-gallon jug and a five-gallon jug. How do you mix that into four gallons exactly? Um, and, you know, they're just like, oh, well, you know, just pour a little bit more into the five. It's like, no, it has to be exact. The math does work. It does work. They just don't explain it in the film. Like, they kind of just get lazy about it. When we cut back, they've done half the work already, and they're like, oh, just pull, pour the rest in. I say, because it's shown, it's shown visibly what they do. So, what, so how do they solve it then? And what is the what is the solution? There's two answers. You can do it two ways, I think. The way I know it, so you fill up the three-gallon jug completely. So you know that's exactly three gallons, and you pour it into the five-gallon jug. So you have two gallons of negative space, two gallons of air. And then you pour that – oh, shit, what was it? You would, <laughs> no, because then you would pour – then you would refill the three-gallon jug, pour that – pour the yeah, pour that into the five-gallon – Shit, no, I'm, ba- I'm back at it. You're good. I have it written down here. No, you're on the right track. It's You refill the three-gallon jug, pour it into the five-gallon jug until the five-gallon jug is full, leaving one... And that leaves one gallon... Yes. That leaves one gallon exactly in your three-gallon jug. Now, you empty your five-gallon jug, pour in the one gallon, and then refill the three gallons and mix that with the one gallon you have exactly one gallon. All right. Yeah. All right. Then that's what I always thought for years, but the internet has given us method two. Let me let me share it with you, which I was surprised about. I'm so fired up because I love how this is a movie where people are stealing gold and things are blowing up. 
the people are getting stabbed. This, yeah, this is where this is where we talk about reality. Yeah, there's a hot lady with like a sickle that she's killing people with, and yet there's a moment in this movie where he surfs a car like Teen Wolf. Come yes. on, like, <laughs> and this is what they're talking about. And, and the internet is obsessed with this. So here's method two, really quickly: fill the five gallon jug. And pour that water into the three-gallon jug until the three-gallon jug is full, leaving two gallons in the five-gallon jug. Empty the three-gallon jug and pour the two gallons of water from the five-gallon jug into the three-gallon jug. Refill the five-gallon jug. Pour that water into the three-gallon jug until the three-gallon jug is full, leaving four gallons left in the five-gallon jug. It's reversed. Yeah. Yeah, it's reverse. It's like a lefty-righty kind of solution. <laughs> That bomb would explode in my hands. <laughs> but you know, I was thinking about like this whole idea of the liquid mixing thing. Like it's a very cool visual and like idea, you know, if there was more sort of like obscure tech in this movie, I'd be down. Like at one point, the most modern thing they mentioned is like, you could set it off by a remote control, even a beeper. But like, I was just thinking what McLean does at the end with the big bomb is he just takes like a pickaxe or, or a piece of something sharp and he pokes the container and the, the fluid just pours out. That was my whole thing. Because, like, it makes sense, you know, this the way they describe it, oh, it's like an epoxy. It's two parts. You have, you know, an epoxy for people who know it. You have, you have a, a hardener and then the the epoxy itself. And they have to mix before it can cure. So it's the same idea for this bomb. Maybe it just gave him an extra time to jump off the boat. Because we do get the worst explosion in cinema history along with one of the best car chases. But that boat explosion is just... If we're talking, like, logistics, like, okay, we're getting massive quantities of this explosive from, uh, at the time, like, was still, like, West Germany, you know fractured West Germany, how are we getting that across an ocean through customs to split it into two benign different chemicals makes a lot of sense for transport and, you know, stuff like that. But you're right. If all you have to do to defuse this bomb is drain one of the tubes. Because I think even the bomb expert, like, starts cutting wires at the school at one point and then ends up just, like, draining it. And he's like, wait a minute, it's like fruit juice or something. Like, it, there's a lot of fake bombs in this movie, too. Because even, again, towards the end, he says, he's like, I work for monsters, but I'm not a monster. Meaning he was never going to blow up the school anyway. It was just total decoy and it served its purpose. That guy is the real, like, honest-to-goodness hero because they were evacuating the school and they realized he couldn't have enough time to defuse it. Then they realized that there's still kids in the school and this guy's like, fuck it, I have to stay. That's big dick energy. Yeah. And he was great right in the beginning when he was introduced, the bomb expert. Like, he comes in explaining this shit to the audience perfectly and he mixes it and he throws a little bit and, like, it explodes in the office and someone yells at him and stuff. And he's like, man, this stuff's cool. I love my job. And we're like, oh, we get more of this guy later. And it's like, oh, wait, he's about to, like, maybe he's going to die. I actually care. Yeah. And he's yeah, only yeah. been on screen for, like, three minutes. Yeah, he was great. And, uh, you know, like, it's funny because in that scene, he's a hero, but also the cop lady with a perm, she runs in too to save those kids. One other person does so a couple heroes in the film who are not named john mcclain so we need to give a shout out to them yeah yeah all like the plainclothes cops in this are actually uh not bastards it would seem so let's talk a little bit about the second half of this movie it's just kind of weird how this movie feels like it was just like split in half where the first half is john mcclain and, and zeus running around new york uh, with simon saying all this stuff and toying with them playing simon says and then we get introduced to him in the flesh like we've heard him on the on the phone a lot john mcclain gets pulled over by the FBI and told like, oh, it's Hans Gruber's brother. And then he appears on screen and enacts his plan. How do you guys feel about his heist? Robbing of the Federal Reserve Gold Vault. Johnny comes marching home. He looked a little like Guile from Street Fighter, especially like the Van Damme version. Super blonde hair, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's an awesome heist. I remember being 
so like oh snap when i was a kid like oh this is all this is a robbery film i thought it was just a let's piss off john mcclain film and the fact that there's all this gold in lower manhattan and i thought it was really really cool visually and i don't know it made more sense to me as a kid whatever but ah, the prep the prep that must have gone into this whole day for jeremy irons and his team here oh my god (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like this feels like a direct influence on the dark knight joker like absolutely <laughs> i was just took the words whole... out of my mouth i was gonna say like that whole setup even okay swap school buses in dark knight for dump trucks and the first thing i thought of is like, who's funding him to do all this oh right they are part of an organization yeah. i wrote like there's a bigger the cif but i don't remember what that stands they're like for. they're like and, mercenaries apparently yeah and he has his little patsy that he double crosses at the end and steals his girlfriend and stuff so maybe that because my whole thing is like this plan awesome as it is because it's a really cool plan you're stealing a shit ton of money that's beyond what anybody can fathom but you have to have millions like hundreds of millions of dollars to begin with and you know it's like at that point if you have that much money anyway you don't need to do anything yeah but you know what this feels like to me this feels like everybody's sort of working and they're going to get paid on the back end right like everybody's sort of like doing this for free getting it all their resources like all the stars are going to align everybody's putting in like all their favors are being called in and, and and everything like that and they're getting behind this dude you know and he's got a vision it's part it's amazing to me that like part of his whole plan is the John McClane stuff. Like it wouldn't really work without a diversion and what a perfect diversion, you know? It's like, that's not even his main agenda is to kill John McClane. He doesn't even care if he's there when John McClane is murdered, you know? Like he gets the call. He's like, John McClane's here. He's like, what should we do? He's like, yeah, just kill him. You know, I don't care. Like we got the gold. (laughs) This is like how I know I'm like an old man now and like just typical suburban debt like mike i don't know if you know this like i i'm a truck salesman i sell heavy duty trucks the whole thing that got me started on this is in the beginning he's like oh he bought 14 dump trucks i'm like a dump truck's like 150 grand he just spent 2.1 million dollars on dump trucks before his plan (laughs) like that's ridiculous (laughs) oh those guys heisted that shit i bet you know and they're just like drive it casually no one's gonna notice a bunch of dump trucks in new york city there's already so many This is insane, but I feel like 1995, we weren't sitting with that, like, uh, Charlie from It's Always Sunny chalkboard trying to put the heist together in our heads like we do today. We wanted to be surprised. We didn't want to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, heist movies weren't even a real big deal around that time anyway, right? Like, if you showed a bunch of people sitting around formulating a plan for half a movie, audiences probably would have walked out, right? (laughs) Like, it's uh, going to take a lot of energy to like make the oceans gang cool and for that to become like a trend again how weird would that be if they redid this movie like an oceans movie from the bad guy's perspective (laughs) (laughs) you son of a bitch i'm in and and like john mcclain's just a little side plot thing like that's how he says like later he's like uh why'd you choose this cop to to fuck with he's like hey you know he happened to do shit to my brother a while ago i didn't really even like my brother but you know fuck the police am i right like So there's a couple very noticeable moments during this hour. One moment that really stood out to me, and it's very brief, but I'm really glad that it's here and it's documented. I mean, uh, along with several shots of them running heroically in front of the World Trade Center still standing, but they go to Old Yankee Stadium, which you could also see, and it can happen to you with Nick Cage, Rosie Perez, and Bridget Fonda. They go to Old Yankee Stadium in that movie. But I just love that. It's like the power of movies. You know, I know we're mostly Mets fans, maybe. I don't know, Dan, what are you? 
Oh, no, no, I'm a Met fan. Brian, you are too. So maybe uh, for us, it might not do that much. Just, I love to see that in movies where it's like, oh, that place just doesn't exist anymore. Like, how awesome. I will say it again. That's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Just for me to see the places that were still there and the places that aren't. Like, above the Grace Papaya, that's still a mattress store. A lot of the stuff downtown still looks like that. Some of it doesn't, but it's just, it's really cool to see when it's, your city in a city you know the little snapshot of it like that so maybe you get not a yankee fan but it was cool to see the old yankee stadium like that i mean again what a weird why do you have to kill him there seems like a lot more red red tape than just be like go to this corner and then snipe him from the top of a random building but hey it's die hard three i'm all in Oh, this movie gets convoluted and all that along the way. I mean, even the things we, we've been bringing up stuff that bothers me, but I'm still having a great time and it, and it doesn't ruin any of it overall. I mean, yes, like this isn't a perfect movie. It's not as good as the first one. I will give people that, but there are moments that elevate it for me. Uh, and it's just like, I'm always having a great time watching it. I say as far as like why Yankee Stadium, like that makes sense to me in, in, in his plan, because you're trying to make it seem bigger than it is. You know what I mean? You, True. Like, you're trying to make it. It's like, oh, Yankee Stadium, some real shit must be going on there, you know? It's something, it's always going to be the next thing, the next thing. The ne- you know, that's why. So it's just adding to the distraction. It feels like part of the statement, too, where it's, like, patriotic or iconic or something. Like, it's the a landmark. excessiveness. Like, like, we found John McClane shot in the head at Yankee Stadium yes. tonight. You know, like, it's a headline, right? That's a good call. I mentioned the terrible explosion uh, about the boat, but aside from that, it's got a lot of great stunts. You know, maybe not the teen wolfing on top of the truck. <laughs> the that, that wasn't really a great stunt. But my second favorite moment is gotta be the inspiration for captain america winter soldier where john mcclain gets into an elevator and a bunch of bad guys get into the elevator with him and he wastes them all i mean he brutally shoots them in the face he doesn't beat them up like cap but like it's the same sequence i was amazed that's where my suspension of disbelief went off because i'm like because he'd be deaf (laughs) how are you hearing anything after that moment like you just shot a guy in in the head like with the gun next to your ear your eardrum like of all the stupid and silly things and ridiculous things that happen in this movie that's where i'm like nah nah -uh." (laughs) (laughs) how amazing if the rest of the movie he he like was deaf or had the ringing in his ear or something like that going on every time they did it in black hawk down there you go i mean it would have been very diehard one when like he cuts his feet on the glass you know they could have done it i guess they just chose not to. i think we're so in at this point that those like little things aren't as valuable to the filmmakers anymore and they're just building to this end of this trilogy with or what they think is going to be a trilogy i'm just gonna lay it out there like i i have um quite a lot of problems with the ending of this movie like everything after the aqueduct like when they meet up and they get onto the boat i I really feel like this movie should have just ended on that boat somehow like i feel like jeremy irons could have given his big speech about how they won on that boat instead of in canada like what in the parking lot of some like motel six (laughs) or something and like you know he could have died in the explosion and they jump you know to safety and everything so like this is where i wish the movie really ended and i feel like the movie has a problem like it doesn't really know how to solve itself i'm not even sure there might have been like an ending written is the way that i feels like all that stuffing at night in canada with the helicopters feels so tacked on and and so sort of like poorly constructed that it really just seems to me they should have ended it like 10 minutes earlier on that boat during that boat sequence 
I 100% agree with you, but I feel like it actually started a little, you know, I think it started a little bit earlier. It's like, yeah, what do we always say? It's like that whole, like, deus ex machina is kind of like a cop out and how does the end of it start getting graveled up because john mcclain got into a dump truck with a random trucker that happens to know that chester a arthur was the 21st president <laughs> it's like it's like oh yeah you know it did not like he had to look it up or anything he just casually offhand he knew chester a arthur and his whole cabinet or whatever i get it it's like a funny little moment thinking like this blue collar guy doesn't knows this piece of trivia but it's kind of like i said from there on it just got it it was almost like a false ending you're right it should have wrapped up on the boat it they wanted to drag out the clue things and the next clue i feel like they wanted to keep that going hence the the aspirin bottle with north of the border truck stop on it and stuff like that And he even comes face to face in the boat and everything and all that. And so it just seems like the perfect moment for there to be a final confrontation and a showdown and John McClane sort of outsmarting Simon because Simon just sort of takes this dude for granted at this point. Like, oh, you're tough, but you didn't survive by your wits. Like you survived from luck. And then John McClane could have done something MacGyverish, or or maybe even Sam Jackson could have came up behind him and just shot him or something and been like, yeah, like he had help like the whole time, you know, and then it could have, he could have said, yippee Kaye, motherfucker. And they look at each other and John McClane's like, hey, I say that too. I didn't know you said that. He's like, I always thought I was the only one who ever said that. But this is all, what, 30 years after the fact or something like in <laughs> hindsight, having watched this movie multiple times. There were actually a couple endings shot for this. The one we see is actually the third ending they decided on. Ooh, third time's not the charm, if you ask me. One is found on the special edition DVD and one... I believe has never been seen. The one that they were going to go with actually is that Jeremy Irons, after we see him leave, they're like, oh fuck, you know, that kind of thing. He gets away with it and they pin it all on McLean and he loses his badge, his pension, everything like that. So McLean, the like final moments are McLean going rogue and essentially tracking down Simon. Apparently he's gotten away to somewhere, but like they've hidden some gold still in the Empire State Building. That's one of the things that happens too. All I know is is that from what I read, again, I've never seen it. I should have looked it up online. But McLean somehow captures Simon and plays a game of McLean Says, Russian roulette with a Chinese rocket launcher. And he ends up killing Simon that way. And the studio was like, and maybe test audience were like, whoa, we don't want to end the Die Hard franchise with McLean essentially just being, even though he's a bad guy here, but being a legit murderer, like on the lamb. You know, it was very violent and very not positive kind of ending it sounds cool but it's like a little bit too violent for them and the second ending it was supposed to end at sea in a raft like you weren't going to get the canada stuff so it was kind of a mix of both of them apparently they didn't shoot the whole thing but the rocket launcher thing was shot they didn't shoot the whole thing with the empire state building or anything like that because they realized towards the end of it that they had to write an ending that was more peaceful if you will but yeah this was originally supposed to end with a rocket launcher russian roulette and mclean basically losing everything how do you play Russian roulette with a rocket launcher? I have no idea. That is a bold direction to end a franchise on, like strip the character of everything and have him walk off into the sunset with just nothing but vengeance. I don't know. Like that is a dark, dark ending. I don't really see that as a as a John McClane thing, though. But all that could have taken place on the boat. It could have rocket launched uh, Jeremy Irons, you know, halfway to Jersey. <laughs> Well, this movie may not have known how to end itself, but this episode has to end. So before that happens, do you guys want to mention anything that we failed to mention along the way about this entire movie? I guess it was bound to happen kind of thing, because where 
where do you go from here? The answer is just don't. You let a sleeping dog lie. You have three good movies. That's more than most franchises get. When you get to John McClane jumping on the back of an F-35 like he's the goddamn Hulk. <laughs> in, the, in the bad Hulk Ang Lee movie, not even the good Hulk movies. You're trying to just top, trying to, you just keep trying to top yourself. And eventually it's just too ridiculous. Personally, what my problem with part four is, is that they paired him up. Not that it's Justin Long playing the kid, but just the idea that John McClane sort of doesn't have a clue what the fuck is going on in that movie. He's like, what's a computer? Like, what's a firewall? Like, what is this? And, you know, like, so that really bugged the shit out of me. Especially because you're still an active cop in the two, like you know, in the mid two thousands. John McClane seems to be the kind of guy, like an old dog, you could teach a new trick to. You know, not some guy who would sort of, you know, just make fun of somebody because they knew how to do something. Yeah, like he's the high school jock, computers nerd. You're still an active cop. You would have had to learn how to use this shit. Yeah, and I, and I also really felt like Justin Long should have played his son. It just would have elevated that movie so much more. The dynamic, you know, would have worked so much better, you know, if they couldn't get along and they were trying to relate the whole time. Uh, you know, I, they got to the one with Jai Courtney in Russia that I never watched. Maybe I'll check that out someday, see how that works, see what their chemistry is like. Um, I would take a Mary Elizabeth Winstead movie as his daughter on her own with the last name McLean, just doing a diehard movie. That would be kind of cool. Bring her back. Yeah, that and that also opens up like a whole new perspective, I should say. You know, like a female action hero uh, in and of itself is just a, a different take on and keeping that McLean thing going. That could be really cool. Brian, how about yourself? You have any uh, any closing thoughts? Any last notes that you'd like to get across? I want to look at this movie in the perspective of your show, Mike, and all the third films we've done, and in particular, you know, some of the action films we've talked about. I mean, not even action films, but like we'll say films that have like a lead that's like the main star, not so much ensemble pieces. When that actor cares. You just get a better movie. I keep bringing it up on this show, but Beverly Hills Cop 3, it was really... <laughs> what? Wait, I don't recall this movie. I keep telling people, if I could Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind myself, it wouldn't be to rewatch a movie I never saw. It would be to eliminate movies I never want to see again. And I think that's high up on the list. <laughs> but it was so obvious that Eddie Murphy was just mailing it in for the paycheck. And this is the opposite here. Like, you can tell Bruce Willis cares... He's present. He, you feel the John McClane character throughout the film. And I guess if I want to leave it on something, it's that like this movie succeeds and it is. Look, it was the best movie of the year. It's considered one of the best third films. It doesn't exceed the first one in people's mind usually, but it, it's worthy of the first one. I think most people rank Die Hard 1, Die Hard 3, Die Hard 2, not counting the new, not the Die Hard 2 is terrible or anything like that. But a lot of people, this almost is like Rocky 3 or 4, Mike, in a sense where a lot of people are like, yeah, I know Rocky 1 is the best one, but Rocky 3 slash Rocky 4 is my favorite. I, I think a lot of people have this as their favorite. And I think once again, it comes down to Bruce Willis just saying like, you know what? I'm all in. Let's do this. Let's end on a good note. Apparently he nixed a couple scripts as well. Like this is the script he wanted to do and not in a lazy way. And like, no, this is the one that's most the McLean character. So, you know, bravo hats off to Bruno. <laughs> oh yeah, Bruno. But that'll do it for this episode. Dan Ferrara, thank you for being on. Thank you for having me, man. Brian Rodriguez, my unofficial co-host. Thank you, as always. Do you want to plug some some episodes coming up? Well, you would have been on our Valley Girl episode in November. That's fun. You know, the Kate Hudson on that one as well. We 
talk about high school films there, teen films. Dan, you've been on a ton, as Mike said. Mike, you've been on a ton. If you like Mike Manzi, if you like Dan Ferrara, check out High School Slumber Party. Oh, oh, one thing I did want to announce. Let's see the Thanksgiving weekend. We're doing something new, something fun. It'll be the first induction ceremony for the High School Slumber Party Hall of Fame. I know we do yearbook specials and that's more about characters. This will be more about actors, actors and filmmakers who've made an impact in teen films, usually in multiple teen films. Uh, I'll have a special panel, a secret panel who will vote on, on this. I have a feeling you, the both of you will be on this secret panel. Again, we're talking from the future now, so it'll already have happened. But in the past, you stayed posted for your emails and you voted for this because we're going to find out who our first class, or we would have found out. Sorry, this is hard to do. We would have found out who the first class of the High School Slumber Party Hall of Fame is. People like Molly Ringwald or like a Julia Stiles or a Seth Green, who we've talked about a lot. Who knows if he'll get in as well, or, or John Hughes or an Amy Heckerling. It's going to be fun. And we're going to be doing this every year to see, you know, different classes of the High School Slumber Party Hall of Fame. I'm excited for it. Check out that episode. Brian, real quick before we close out for the night, uh, update on Cousin Pumpkin tattoo. Anything going on there? As of this recording, which is uh, sometime in early November, has uh, any anything gone on there? The goal is before the end of the year to find a tattoo artist who will do this. I've been in communication with some. A lot of people don't want to do art that's Disney. I know a guy. Is it you, Dan? Because no, I don't no, no, no. Like, like Autumn has friends that tattoo. The guy I've gone to recently, like he's done like Chippendale Rescue Ranger tattoo. I was like, holy shit, that looks like exact. Like he has no problem. He's done Popeye. Like he, he'll probably do it. Well, well, guys, you have my phone number. Please give me tattoo artists who will do this, and I'll make some phone calls and I'll. I'll get something done because he needs to be tattooed the, the voters have voted <laughs> I, I might even get a power line tattoo I, I sent you one or two and i was like this looks pretty good like this is <laughs> legit design i don't know why this flash isn't on the wall of every studio yeah so for your listeners out there my cousin cousin pumpkin he agreed on our 100th episode to get a tattoo from the film a goofy movie the slumberers voted and they voted for max's power line a lot of people were disappointed because it was very close paulie shore's leaning tower of chisa it should have been the leasing tower of chisa i'm considering doing that now <laughs> i'll tell you what it'll make your wife happy she was one of the big backers oh of she, that. Uh, she would not bat an eye she would probably be fully <laughs> in support of it oh i think so i agree that well yes so that's what we were alluding to and we'll get them tattooed soon i promise all right guys so you are officially free this ride is over but I feel like there's only one way uh to end this you know in the true diehard fashion yippee yippee kai
All right, that's going to do it for another action-packed episode of Third Time's a Charm. Gotta thanks my unofficial co-host, you know who. Once again, Brian Rodriguez, High School Slumber Party. Check it, check it, check it out. And of course, Dan Ferreira. If anybody needs trucks out there, look up Dan, a.k.a. the third Dan. You know, that third man joke from the intro anyway great having him on as well great to talk some die hard as 2020 comes to a close i just want to say things with the programming may not have exactly worked out the way i intended when i posted that episode at the beginning of the year looking forward to the rest of the year to talk about all the movies i was gonna review well you know for many reasons that schedule kind of changed mixed up got shifted around i got lazy well i didn't get lazy it's just not as productive as most people in the lockdown you know what i'm talking about other things going on lots of stuff but there's still some time who knows what's gonna happen in the future uh, the show's not quite over yet anyway check out my new show one of the things that might have taken up some of that extra time but it was definitely worth it check out my new show the monsters that made us where me and Dan Cologne you might have heard him on this show before he was my horror consultant one of my very good friends him and I are watching all 31 original Universal monster movies from the Phantom of the Opera to the creature of the Black Lagoon Join us as our monsterific journey begins. Check out all the other shows that I'm on, as well as all the other great programming on the network at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Write to me at 3 at cageclub.me. Subscribe at iTunes, rate, review, etc., all that stuff. Find this and all other Cage Club podcasts everywhere quality podcasts are available. And until next time... That's the magic number. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three, they stub at me, and that's the magic number. What does it all mean?